HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. For more information, visit rothcheese.com. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And today, as we do so often, we're going to be talking about food memories. You know, few people have the extraordinary experience of learning to cook from famous chefs or famous cookbook authors or or just incredible home cooks in person. But as a founding member, editor, founding editor-in-chief of Sever Magazine and also Metropolitan Home and a seasoned editor of many great cookbooks, Dorothy Kalins found herself cooking with and learning from some of the biggest names in the food world. And she shares that experience and a philosophy also in a new book that she that has just come out from William Morrow called The Kitchen Whisperers, as it's been called a beautifully written tribute to the people who teach us to cook and guide our hands in the kitchen. Dorothy is a, an award-winning magazine editor with experience, as I said, as the founding editor of Metropolitan Home and founding editor-in-chief of Sever, executive director of Newsweek, so much more, and collaborated on so many cookbooks, including David Tannis's uh, bestseller, Platter of Figs, and Michael Anthony's Gramercy Tavern cookbook, and Vias for Vegetables, two books, um, Michael Solomonoff's, uh, and Stephen Cook's recently published and award-winning book, Sahav. Um, it, so many books. Dorothy, I mean, so much food. Did you welcome to the show? First of all, thank you very much. You were inducted into uh, Adweek's edit. She, you were named Editor of the Year in 2013, and you were uh, voted into the Who's Who in food and beverage uh, for the James Beard Foundation. Uh, did you ever know that you were going to become a food editor, food writer? Was that in? Not not at all. It it no. never. I think the the idea uh, of speaking to readers and helping them find get excited about the things that I was excited about and bring to them real information was always the motiv- motivating fact. I was. I mean, I'm a service journalist. I I want to bring ideas and and. Um, and enthusiasm to readers, and that's what I do in what I did in magazines and what I do in books. Mm-hmm. 
Um, it's just in the storytelling, I have to say that, you know, you go from editing and, and crafting those stories to telling your own story in the background of cooking has always been in your life as it comes through in, in your new book, Kitchen Whispers. Um, how did, tell, tell us a little bit about Kitchen Whispers and how this came about and what you, what, what your goal was in writing this. When I thought about it being thrust in the, in the pandemic kitchen alone, I kept, I kept realizing that there were people who were talking to me and I'm not a crazy person. There were people who, who I heard as I did certain things. And it wasn't in the language of cookbooks, like measure carefully three tablespoons of this and put it. It was, for example, I remembered a French grandmother saying to me, you have to wash your salad greens three times to get rid of the dirt. And every time I came home from the farmer's market, I found myself hearing, um, my stepdaughter's grand French grandmother saying to me, make sure you wash your lettuce leaves. And then I realized that other people were talking to me too. And I've, I've, I've been lucky enough to, to know and work with so many wonderful cooks. And I have benefited from the knowledge, which is never in, it's always kind of life lessons. It's not so mm -hmm. much culinary lessons. Right. Uh, and it you you um, relate that so well through your stories and everyone, I'm sure, you know, can identify with that. In fact, you even said one time that when as you when people asked about what book are you writing and you told them about it, you could see their eyes, as you say, you could see their eyes soften with understanding as they connected to their own memories. And, and we all have these food memories or those of us who spend time in the kitchen at all. Well, that's you asked why I I tackled this book, and it was exactly that to share my experience with readers so that they could connect with the people in their lives, and that's what makes their eyes soften in recognition. I mean, it's just it's it's lovely to, to for for, and I guess somehow um, wh while we know this instinctively, it hasn't been articulated exactly the idea that there are people who, who talk to us still in the kitchen. Yeah. Mm. It, so you have, you come from a background of, um, well, when you found me, when you were the founding editor of Savour, which I'd like to talk about with you, but so you come from a background here as, as editing these food stories of some really great people in the food world. Yes. Uh, and yet you, but you weren't daunted at all by them or their cooking. I mean, you just cooked right along with them, right? Well, I, in the, in the book writing stage of after I stopped doing magazines and started doing books, I, the way I do books is, is very much the way I did magazines, which was just get in there with, with them and try to understand the things that I didn't understand and make them clear for readers. So it's exactly the same editorial impulse. And it wasn't like any of these chefs, for example, were looking at me to help them in any way except to make the book. You right. know, in other words, they could, they could do very well without me in the kitchen. It was just that I, the way, the hands-on way I have of, of, producing books is to be right there with every 
chef, I uh, package a, a that I produce a book with, and I I need to understand it so that I can explain it to readers. Right, right. Well, that's that's really I think that's really important. Um, tell me about starting up Sever Magazine back in what was it ninety ninety four ninety four. So so what happened with that was that I was editor of Metropolitan Home, mm-hmm. and at Metropolitan Home we were very much in the leading edge, the cutting edge of design and architecture, and also food. And at that point, I had met Coleman Andrews, who was, uh, at the, he was at that time the restaurant critic for the LA Times and lived in Los Angeles, a California born and bred boy, um, but incredibly well-traveled and, and highly opinionated. And he began to recognize something that that I got excited about, which was that American chefs and cooks were really excited about their own ingredients and their own American style and were not eager to ape Spanish or Italian or French culinary achievements they they want they were asking really important questions what is it that we have here what are our what's our heritage what's our what can we build on what are what are the ingredients that are the seminal ingredients of american cooking and it was chefs like alice waters and and uh, Jonathan Waxman and and Wolfgang Puck and Larry Forgio and those people who were very early in this movement, which we at Met Home dubbed the New American Cuisine. And so we, we started writing and publishing about those people just as we wrote about the designers and architects who were forming a contemporary sen- sensibility. So that so Coleman and Christopher Hersheimer, a woman, mm-hmm. um, and who was then our food editor at Met Home, the three of us were 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 friends and of like minds, and we we really actually got together while we were still doing Met Home, and we thought God, we need a food magazine that's an authentic food magazine, not one that tells you six ways to make por- pork chops tonight, but or ones that will tell you things like low-fat cassoulet. We wanted to do the real thing. And as it turned out, we were able, through a new company formed by Chris Meir, who was the head of magazines at Time, Inc., um, which the company was called Meir Communications, and it, it acquired the title to a magazine that was published in France called Saveur with an S, Savers, Flavors. Mm -hmm. And we decided to do our version of it. And that's, and and we, there were a tiny group of us and we sat in a room and we said, we're not doing anything dopey. We're not doing anything because anybody tells us, we're going to just, we're going to find, define a magazine that is, going to tell you the real story about something, whether it's a cover story on saffron, which would have been unheard of for any of the existing food magazines to do, or one on pizza, which was the where pizza was born. In other words, we were interested in, in finding the, the historical story and interpreting it for the present. And that became the flame of 
of Sever and with Coleman and Christopher, the three of us just set out to do it. And we were all writers and Christopher became a photographer, a fine photographer. Mm-hmm. And uh, Coleman had had already written a number of books. He had written Catalan Cuisine, which was very seminal um, in, in our in our lives. And we just, we, we kind of instinctively knew what not to do and we were inventing our way toward doing what to what to do. Well, the magazine, I can tell you, was um, much anticipated by many of us in the food world already. I mean, when we, you know, got wind of that and was very well received by people who who loved food magazines. I don't know how it played out for the, you know, the general population. Obviously, it did. You know, it did well. But um, it was it was a, it was a. a I felt like it was a step above, you know, it was like the way we said it was we went narrow and deep into um, into a subject and tried to do it with uh, enough beautiful photography and and engaging writing so that people would would take that journey with us. Loved it. Yeah. So that's pretty much well, even at Metropolitan Home, you were, you know, were, you know, doing articles with people who were food cooks and, and chefs. Yes. And so that started, but, you know, super um, got into it in, as you say, head first in with or deep with uh, Sever and, and then went on from there. Uh, and what year did you leave Sever? 2001, just months before 9-11. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I went to Newsweek. Um, after after seven years we of doing Sever and Garden Design uh, at Mere Communications, I then went to I went to Newsweek. Mm. Well, it's it's just the the stories, um, as I say once again in your new book, Kitchen Whispers. And now we know that there's a, there are those ghost voices as you're in your kitchen. <laughs> no, you're not crazy. Just read the book, and she's not crazy. <laughs> And I think we all have those voices, whether it's our mother or grandmother or, you know, a, a you know a best friend, someone. I mean, you always stand in your kitchen and remember the first time you ever made that dish or I mean, right. those, I, I, I believe it's probably a common thing, not just with me or you, um, you know, who where where you first ate the dish, where you so maybe you asked somebody to show you how to make it or you were, you know, watching somebody make it. What you, I like what you have said too, is that the cooking lessons that stick with you are rarely the ones that you read in the books. I know. And I, I, when I realized that, I mean, I thought, well, I published some wonderful, wonderful books and I don't mean to take anything away from them. Mm -hmm. But I think when you, when you, you have to have a, I mean, this is the kind of cook I am, and I think it sh- I share that with a lot of people, which is that the recipe is perhaps the least important part of something. You kind of have to feel where you're going, and then where you, if you can, you remember the flavors, or you remember the experience, or what the night was like, or who was doing. You know, you remember somebody's hands at work. Um, and I was lucky enough, for example, to to get to know Marcella Hazan uh, in, in a friendship basis beyond what I did uh, with her professionally, which was to just write a few stories about her. And she just, she never minced words. And she was totally um, 
uh, opinionated. I mean, she oh, yes. just never, you know, and 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 I, if I'm doing something that I know she would disapprove of, I know that I'm, you know, it's in my head. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And even just reading, you know, when you read Marcella's books, I mean, I um, I remember waiting with anticipation when her first book you know, was released. And uh, she was even you, the opinionated attitude came through in her books as well. Absolutely. Was, yeah, she really. Uh, but that's something that it's, <laughs> as you say, it's it's another one of those voices because you had the privilege of having met, you know, worked with her and and, and cooked with her. Those, you know, that voice was there, her voice. But in the book, I can hear, I can hear voices from books. Yes, I'm right. crazy too. I, I hear voices in books. Often it'll be people I know, people, you know, that I'm, or I'm very familiar with, you know, their work. Um, and in, I know that we don't, yes, we do learn cooking lessons from, from books, but as you say, it's the, when someone actually takes you aside and shows you, you know, how to do something or, or gives you a tip. Yes. Right. Um, like, you know, if you whisk the oil in first, you know, <laughs> I mean, those are things that you'll never forget and you'll always do it that way. And you exactly. wonder, why do I exactly. do it that way? Yeah. 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 Um, you, you also uh, have said that you've always been seduced by the way real people cook. And when you say real people, I guess you mean the ones who aren't the, the famous chefs or... Look, who wouldn't want a professional chef in your kitchen doing something? Right. And you watch that. I remember one time, um, Carrie Heffernan, who was one of the first, um, who was the first chef at Eleven Madison Park back before it became what it is now, and he it was just a, a really good bistro restaurant. And he had caught a fish, and and he it came in with Roger, my husband, and they and they took the the fillet and they. And he took, he filleted the fish and chopped a whole bunch of parsley and put it on a board and then just put the fillet on the parsley and turned it. And of course, the parsley stuck to the fish. Now, that's the most obvious thing in the world, but I didn't ever know, you know, I would be busily sprinkling the parsley over the, you know, and it would have, mm-hmm. but he just put it on and the weight and the, and the dampness of the fillet would, would pick up the parsley. And it just, I mean, I, that isn't even in the book. It just occurred to me right now, but I thought about when you're watching people, you can get so much from that or you're, or you're listening to them. You can, you can pick up so many things that then become yours. Uh, that's right. You're, you're absolutely right. Uh, and some people will tell me, they always do that something a certain way because when we made it together, I told them, and I do, I don't remember half the things I you don't I you just them. say you I just it just comes out of your mouth as you're cooking, <laughs> right? Um, there, I'm. I want to talk more about um, some of the some of the real people experiences when we come back. We have to take a short break, so when we come back, we're going to talk more about some of these kitchen whisperers that keep coming out at you. So stay tuned. Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. Roth has made specialty cheese in the rolling hills of Wisconsin for more than 30 years. With strong Swiss heritage, 
Roth is best known for its award-winning Alpine-style Grand Cru cheeses. Fresh Wisconsin milk, combined with expertise in affinage, is how Roth creates high-quality, great-tasting cheese year after year. In 2016, hard work paid off when out of over 2,000 contenders, Roth Grand Cru Sir Schwa was named world champion at the World Cheese Championship. For more information, visit rothcheese.com. Hi, we're back, and I'm speaking with Dorothy Kalins, who has a new book out called The Kitchen Whispers. And I, I don't even know, is there a subtitle to The Kitchen Whispers? It's Dorothy? called Cooking with the Wisdom of Our Friends. There you go. Okay. And our friends, be they famous chefs or your best friend next door or whomever, right? I right. Mean, you, you, you tell some, just some wonderful stories from people who aren't great cooks, but they, but maybe they shared something that was um, that important with you. you. Yeah, yeah. Camille, you have a a, a a character in your book, Camille, who. <laughs> what a character. Yeah, she, just, she was <laughs> I was very very lucky to have her in my life and she was a a very well-known interior designer and had been a friend of my parents and she we lived near each other in New York and so I would go to her house for dinner and she would she just had a way. Well, she first of all, she taught me about how to put things in and never never deliberately teaching you know, just just the things that you do. And I guess I picked up on these things. For example, put your leftovers in beautiful glass dishes that you can then serve from. Simple. And stack. You know, they're the old ones. They're they're and it's and it's it, it makes all the sense in the world because and and she was so she was a designer who was designing as she lived and I picked up things. I mean I just I remember her taking whole strawberries with their tops on and putting them on a platter in little rows. And I loved that. I love. I, I just loved watching the way she handled food. And she was a very influential person in my life. And I was very lucky to have her. I mean, they say we eat with our eyes first, but then again, someone like Marcella Hazan, for instance, was it was not always too concerned with how the dish looked. Oh no, she didn't. She thought that was actually a mistake to be so concerned about that. And she was very impatient with uh, American chefs who really cared about the way she thought they cared more about the way a plate looked, and certainly in a restaurant, uh, than than the way it tasted. Now that's not necessarily all. I mean, that's you know, damning with, with, you know, that's not true for, for everybody. But she said, when she would say this thing, well, you bring me the pet plate, I'll photograph it, and then you bring me another plate and we'll eat it. <laughs> because she just felt like green beans. She said, American chefs, they, these young American chefs, they don't cook things. They just show them the water. <laughs> Too crispy. Right? Yeah. Right, right. Uh, you know what? Through the book, there's. I mean, there's just so much. I just encourage people if you enjoy a good story and and have some interest in food as well. You don't even have to have an interest in food for that matter. It, there are so many different stories that take you on different journeys in this book. Um, from the one I told you before we started the show that the book made me cry and laugh, and it did. 
Um, one was, I think, when you you saved someone's cooking utensil. You got the cooking utensil from a from my from mother-in-law. Your mother-in-law, and I and you were describing it, and I can see that because my mother and probably came from maybe from her mother. I don't know, but she had the same set of cooking tools, and and that just I you described it, and I it, I pulled up a picture in my mind and it just brought tears to my eyes. It was just, it was so sweet. It was beautiful. I'm so glad that connected because that's the only way for a book like this to work is for it to connect with its readers. So that makes me very happy. Yeah. I mean, and a lot of people go to antique stores and shop for these old vintage, you know, cookware. And for our listeners to understand what it was she was describing, what I'm talking about too, they're old, they were vintage. Uh, they weren't even antique. I don't know. But cooking utensils that had decorative wooden handles. They'd be usually a, a, a green, right? Yeah. Um, some blue, blue ones. And and the paint would be worn off. Always, yes. always. <laughs> From many usings and many washings. And, right. and you just, when you, it, and it's not, it, it's not about an antique. It's about something that's been used. It had it has life in it, and it's it really is it's true. And, um, there's another section that just it was a brief you know section of, of the book, a few pages, and what you did. I mean, so I learned so much. There's you can get a lot of history from this book too. By the way, people out there, <laughs> this is culinary history. But you gave an incredible snapshot of. Mid-century cooking, I got to tell you, by, by trying to recreate your some of your mother's dishes. Yes. And I can see all those boxes of, you know, Jello and, and uh, uh, whether it's a brownie mix in a box or something. Right. I can see all these products. Tell me a little bit about why you did that. Well, a book like this, if you're going to go back to to your own past, you have to look at your mother or your father or, or your grandmother. And I, I say I was very low on grandmothers and uh, who cooked. And so I, I had to look very hard about what, what it was like growing up in my mother's kitchen. And she was of the generation she had worked before she had me. And she, she was very a very proud career woman. And was was loving the things that that were labor saving so there was minute rice and there was bisquick and there was every kind of jello you could imagine and canned fruit and Campbell's soup and ketchup and every every kind of thing that you could do to avoid making something from scratch Although she did do things like that, she did, that was not the ethic of her generation of of mothers. Right. And also, convenient food were 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 cool then. I mean, nothing was. We didn't ever use the word cool, but that was really what they were. That was, you know, you were proud if you could defrost some frozen beans, or I mean, have you could have um, frozen. Ice um, orange juice. I mean, that was just it was convenient. It was fine. It, nobody ever thought about flavor or um, 
my mother was very in, encouraged about vitamins. I mean, that was important to her. And I think she maybe eventually realized that was not the best way to get them out of a frozen can. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, along the way, when you talk about your stories there, you also, um, you know, within the context of a story or in the text of the story, you do include recipes. Look carefully because they're not written like regular recipes. No. It's, it's all part of the story. And, yes. Uh, and I love that as well. And for you, you know, not that you were only telling stories of famous uh, famous chefs. There were just some fun stories in there too. Um, because you're, you are very, very observant. It comes out quite clearly in the book. Um, the fact that you mentioned that you knew families in your neighborhood when you were young by the ketchup they used. I mean, this well, is- that was actually Danny. That was Danny Meyer. Oh, that was Danny. That and was his, Danny, his- who, who I I'll never forget when he told me that years and years and years ago that he knew people by what kind of ketchup and what kind of mayonnaise they 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 oh. used their their friends which house. He was going to, and I that to me that stuck with me. I mean, he told me that maybe twenty some odd years ago, and I confirmed it with him recently. I said, "This is was this true that you really said?" He said, "Absolutely." I knew if I was going to my friend Alan's house, they used uh, Hellman's mayonnaise, and you know, and (laughs) because that kind of showed how sensitive he was at an early age to taste and flavor and the difference it made. I loved that. And and I talk a little bit about we have a dinner with a group of a small group of friends that we have every year where one of us cooks and and whenever it's my turn to cook and Danny and Audrey are coming to dinner, I just always want to surprise him and jolt him a little bit. And it's never by doing anything super fancy. It's by doing something you know, finding the biggest dried white beans I can find and serving them with clams or mm-hmm. uh, marinating a kind of olive, special olive, and he's always guessing what, what they are. So that, you know, I've been lucky to, to have that experience. Yeah. Well, and, um, and I did not mention that Danny Meyer wrote the prologue for your um Yeah, he was, he was book, really kind. Very, of, very generous um, stories that he, he reveals of yes. himself in there as well. Yeah, very, very nice. Um, you know, Unless people think once again that because you had this this wonderful opportunity to cook and work with so many famous people, um, and that everything that that was made was you know was super gourmet, um, you you gave some examples of some very uh, cute stories where you found that there were certain shortcuts that even famous chefs took, and you you. You applied a, a title to it or, or a theory to it called Your Theory of Implied Endorsement. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, that was just something I invented because I re- <laughs> it started one morning after a, a very good cook had made dinner in our kitchen. And there was left in the refrigerator a jar of better than bouillon. And I, I would never be caught dead buying better than bouillon because, you know, that you have to start with the chicken and you're cooking it down for 12 hours and you're making the, you know, whatever, making the stock the long way. And I thought, well, if she uses that, then I 
can use that. And then I started talking to some of my cook friends and saying, well, what do you, you know, if, if you use it, then that gives me permission to use it. So, for example, my friend John Kessler, who is a wonderful writer and a restaurant reviewer, lives in, was wrote for the Atlantic Constitution for years and now lives in Chicago. And he told me, well, you know, I use Philadelphia cream cheese to thicken sauces. And th- that's just wonderful. You never even think about something like, I would never think about that. And so the, the theory of implied endorsement is that if a good cook uses some shortcut, you get to do it too. A wonderful <laughs> Italian cook, a, an American, but a, who cooks a, an Italian food really beautifully. One day I was um, putting some white wine in his refrigerator and I saw a, a carton of ground um, Parmesan, not the green one from Kraft, but it was a, you know, a, a deli browned half gallon of half quart. And I thought, well, if he uses that, then maybe I can too. So that's what the theory of implied endorsement is. (laughs) That was, it was fun. It was fun to read that actually written down (laughs) in the book. With all your experience of cooking with, you know, cooking fancy dishes, famous dishes, real dishes, uh, and you talk about great Southern experience and, and cooking, you know, pulled together meals and Southern foods. Um, what is the foods, what, what are the foods that you like to cook yourself the most? Well, I'm, you know, like most of us, I've spent the last year and a half alone in the kitchen and, Mm. um, I'm in heaven when tomatoes and corn and every sort and peaches are, are, are right now is it's just wonderful because you don't even think about cooking you think about slicing <laughs> and melons and I mean it's it's I really do start with the market and I and I'm lucky enough to be able even though it's pretty much a desert in New York in the in the winter months and I'm just groaning with anticipating turnips and and uh, Jerusalem artichokes and all the daikon radishes and whatever that I'm going to have to be dealing with because there's nothing. Fr- but it's always starting with the freshest ve- vegetables I can get my hands on and then taking it from there. Mm. Um, our, our last night, our super, you know, I live in a, a high-rise building in midtown Manhattan, and our superintendent is a big mad fisherman, and he brought us a whole flounder last night. And I had to get out a book that I knew where that I knew how to take the backbone out of a flounder, but I it was maybe ten or fifteen years ago that I knew. And then my husband went on the on YouTube to try to figure out how do you take you know what how do you do that how do you handle a whole flounder? Well, what we did was we made a slit down the back and a slit uh, across the head and across the tail and made these two flaps and I stuffed it with, I had some corn on the cob and I stuffed it with corn, I made some croutons. I just put a whole bunch of stuff in that fish and and roasted it in the oven for about 20 minutes and it was extraordinary. And it, it made me so happy because it was everything I had in the house and it, plus this wonderful gift. 
of a whole flounder. So that's quite that's quite generous. That's a great that's a great yeah. Idea. It really was yeah. extraordinary. Yeah. That doesn't happen every day. <laughs> well, you do give away your recipe for red pepper relish. Yes. And I wonder this season, did you? Did oh, you we did. We more? did. I just, I just last weekend, Labor Day weekend, we made, I don't know, maybe two dozen jars of, of red pepper relish. And we made our, our bread and butter pickles too, again, because it just felt like it was important to do. Anyone whispering to you while you were making the pickles? Well, I had some... I've had some experiences over the years of pickle making and and I you know, I I juggle on those two recipes I've done my whispering um conversations in the past and now I just follow my own recipe because I don't want to screw up. <laughs> right. Well, you know, as you said consciously or not all those whisperings that went uh, before you, they all make us the cooks that we are. They do, and and you. This book is, I think it it really. I hope so. I hope everyone who picks it up will identify with it and and find, you know, a story that's familiar in, in their past. But certainly, you have given them uh, sort of the the, the the right the 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 permission to go ahead and cook the way you want to cook. Absolutely. The way that people have told you. Absolutely. I mean, to, to, to not be cowed by, by complicated recipes and by complex ingredients. And I, I think you have to start with what you love, what you love to cook and what you love to eat. And I think there's a little bit of a tyranny of the restaurant recipe that, you know, with 27 ingredients, that's, that's still people equate that with being a good cook. And I, I used that example of the flounder last night to think, you know, what what you have, if you're lucky enough to have the good ingredients, you can't really go wrong. That's right. Well, as the fall season, um, you know, creeps upon us, I'm not ready for summer to end yet. No, I'm not either. Fall, fall is creeping upon us. Um, you do have a, a, a couple of really terrific stories on Thanksgiving. I'm going to leave that a secret for people. They have to pick up the book and check it out. We'll even learn a little history about sweet potatoes and marshmallows. Yes. <laughs> but there's just so much in the book. And I just, you know, I, I enjoyed it. And um, I wish you all kinds of luck with it. And I also hope that people out there recall a lot of their kitchen whispers. That's what I, I hoped with writing yeah. this book. Yeah. Good job. Thank you so much for writing it. Thank you. You're a wonderfully appreciative reader. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you for sharing your time and talking about it. It's it's really just such a treasure. You're very and, welcome. And hope that everyone will enjoy it. And thanks again for you listeners out there. Remember, you've been listening to A Taste of the Past. And also remember that you're listening to this through Heritage Radio Network. And we are a listener-supported network. So if you go to our website, there is a place for you easily at the top of the page to click on donate, become a member, or just donate, whatever you want to do. It keeps these shows like this and so many more on the air, and we can't do it without you. So thanks a lot. Bye-bye. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. 
Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.